This will be the sixth and final message in the Living at the Crossroads series. <clears throat> so far, we've been looking at some of the things leading up to the crucifixion. We also looked last week at some of what transpired immediately following the resurrection. Today, I invite you to consider a couple more things that followed Christ's triumph over death. And I also invite you to consider how it can still impact your life some 2,000 years later. I'm calling this crossroads or intersection for today the intersection of what was and what will be. I'm reluctant to say this again because I know I've said it earlier in this series, but remember that this title was selected long before we had a clue how the coronavirus was going to alter the course of our daily lives. Interestingly enough, over the past several weeks, I suspect that virtually everyone who's listening to this message has given some thought to what was and wondered about what will be. I'm going to start with how this crossroads impacted those who were closest to Christ as he walked the earth. Then I will wrap things up with what it might look like for you and me. So what was? As the last week of Christ's earthly life was unfolding, I suspect that gradually those who were experiencing it with him were beginning to get a sense that they might be losing what was forever. It probably started with Christ's own words as he began to say things that made them wonder what the future might look like. Then came the, the dramatic events, starting with his betrayal by Judas, his arrest in the garden, the denials that came forth. Then there were the crowds and the religious leaders calling for his crucifixion. Ironically, some of those same people yelling crucify him were there for the triumphal entry, shouting Hosanna. They had to begin to wonder what was and how it was going to change. Then there were the beatings, uh, the mocking, him carrying his cross toward the hill where he would be crucified. The brutality of the actual crucifixion had to make it incredibly real that what was was changing. There's that moment when he's on the cross and he looks to a couple of his followers that were brave enough to stand at the foot of the cross and he looked at them and said, take care of my mother when this is all over. Then as the end drew close and he's hanging there on the cross, he says those words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What was was changing. And then those final three words when he said, it is finished. It had to be coming very, very real that what was, was going away. Then there's the spear in his side confirming that he's dead. His burial, what was, is gone. Then day one with him in the tomb and the reality is sinking in deeper and deeper. Then day two. What was is gone, and it's not coming back. Everything they had known of Christ, everything they had done with Christ, everything they had expected of Christ was never, ever going to be the same again. And they had a choice to make. What I want us to grasp today is that while turning to what was is natural and on some levels necessary, 
it can be emotionally devastating if we keep going in that direction for too long. That's why it's important to grasp that it can be incredibly helpful to note that Jesus did three things to help his followers transition from what was and begin to think about what will be. Yes, things would be different for the rest of eternity. Yes, their lives were going to be different moving forward. There was no doubt about that. But in Christ, what will be will be better than what was. They may not have understood how, but that's part of the journey with him. So let me quickly remind you of three things that Jesus did to help his followers move from what was and begin to move forward with what will be. First, he sought out those he loved and those who loved him. I mentioned it last week when I, when I talked about Mary Magdalene in the garden and that moment when Jesus spoke her name and she had that divine revelation realizing she was talking to her risen Savior. He sought her out for that moment. The two disciples that we read about in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus, they were leaving, heading home from Jerusalem, discouraged and distraught because all they had thought Christ was going to be, all that they had seen what was, is gone. And they're, and they're walking home discouraged and dejected. And, and again, the story tells us that Jesus comes alongside and walks with them. But again, much like Mary, they didn't recognize him until that moment when he came into their home and broke bread with him with them then they recognized him and they began to see maybe what was is gone but there might be something to what will be he sought out the disciples again we remember from the story in John that they were after the crucifixion after the resurrection they're trying to figure out what's going on and they're literally hiding in a locked room and Jesus shows up. He sought them out for that moment. Thomas, we don't know where he was, maybe he was out for coffee, but he missed out on that and Jesus sought him out for a one-on-one -on -one encounter where he had the opportunity to set his doubts aside by, by putting his hands in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus and realizing, yes, it was Jesus, and yes, he was alive. And he began to see what will be. Then, as I talked at great length last week about Peter and his fishing buddies, Jesus sought them out for that encounter on the shoreline. He ate with them to, to emphasize to them. He was real. It was a real presence. He sought them out to bring encouragement and comfort to them. He showed them he still, in his risen form, had miraculous power. And then as I think about him seeking people out, I'm reminded of the story, and, and Paul references it in his letter to the Corinthians, that Jesus sought out his half-brother James, the one who had questioned his mental health as Jesus was walking on the earth and developing a following. James was a skeptic, but the risen Savior sought him out to help him see what was, what was is gone, but what will be is something to lean into. 
So the first thing he did was he, he sought out those he loved. He sought out those who loved him. Secondly, as we, noticed, as we noted last week, he restored those he sought out and those who responded to his risen presence. He lifted them up. He encouraged those who were discouraged. He gave hope to those who doubted. He brought comfort and healing to those who were hurting and grieving. He sought them and he restored them. And then finally, the risen Christ in this journey to what will be, he empowered them to fulfill his mission. In that exchange from John chapter 20, when he came to them in that locked room, it records that this, it says, and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I'm empowering you with my very presence, the very Spirit of God to dwell within you. In Matthew 28, uh, verses 16 through 20, as, as he's kind of wrapping up his time with the disciples after the resurrection, we read that the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him. And I just can't imagine what that worship experience must have been like. But even in that moment, there were some who doubted. But Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I am surely with you always to the very end of the age. What will be is we have a mission. They had a mission. And they had the promise of his presence, ever present. I always like to comment when we go to Matthew 28 that Jesus didn't say, I will be with you. He said, I am with you. He is always present tense, present to equip us, to empower us, to restore us, and to release us to do his work. This is continued, the idea of him sending them. It's continued in Acts chapter 1. Luke is writing, and he's writing to his, his friend and, and colleague Theophilus, and he says, in my former book, referring to the gospel according to Luke, I wrote about, wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving, giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea 
and in all of Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Friends, he was sending them. He was sending them to be impactful, to take his message locally, to the area around them, to the region around them, and to the ends of the earth. He sought them, he restored them, and he sent them to continue with the very purpose, the reason he came from heaven in the first place. So what about us? What was? As I've confessed to you in previous messages over the years, it took me way, way too long in life to realize that what was was never going to stay the same. Everything changes. Everything changes. This was true before coronavirus, and this will be true after coronavirus. Everything changes. But that is not necessarily a bad thing. Because generally, if we're honest with ourselves, what was, was not all that. The what was of the resurrection story was a life of separation from God due to our sin nature and our inability to change that nature. The what will be of the resurrection story is that we can all be transformed and live in a real, personal, life-changing love relationship with God. I want to wrap things up with a quick look at what will be as it relates to you and to me today. What will be? I don't have a clue. I admit that in these unprecedented times, I literally have no idea what you personally are dealing with as you listen to my words. I don't know what losses you're grieving. I don't know what fears and doubts are invading your quiet moments or robbing you of sleep. I don't know what makes you frustrated or angry. I don't know what physical, emotional, relational, financial, or spiritual battles any one of you are facing. But I do know the risen Christ is the same today as he was in those first days after the resurrection. And he's still doing those same three things. He's still seeking. He's still looking to restore us. And he still wants to send us. Today, understand, he is seeking you. If you've never said, yes, Jesus, I want you to be a part of my life. If you've never said, Jesus, yes, I want you to be in control of my life. He is seeking you right now. But if you said yes years ago, understand he's still seeking you and will continue to be seeking you until he personally welcomes you into your eternal home. He always, regardless of where we're at in the continuum, he always wants to know more of you. And he always wants you to know more of him. He's always seeking to draw you closer in your times of pain. And he's always seeking to celebrate with you in your times of joy. What will be? I can guarantee you what will be is that Jesus is seeking you. He also 
wants to restore you. As I said last week, the risen Christ wants to restore you. No matter how bad you've messed up, no matter how many times you've messed up, he wants to restore you. If you've just started the journey, he's thrilled about your potential. If you've been at it for years, he is still working to complete the restoration in your life. His goal is your perfection in his love. Now most of us balk at that word perfection, but he wants us to live in such a fashion that increasingly on a daily basis, more and more of his love for us and more, of, more, more and more of his love for others is manifested in and through us. He wants to restore us to our full potential. What will be? Jesus loving you so much that he is helping you, he is restoring you to increasingly become all that he created you to be. And part of it is leaning into that relationship with him to come to understand that sometimes what we think we want to be and what he wants us to be are different. And we have to lean into that restoration process and partner with him in becoming what he created us to be. And then it's imperative that we understand. He wants to send you. He seeks you because he loves you just the way you are. He restores you because he loves you too much to let you remain separated from him. He restores you because he loves you too much to let you be less than all he created you to be. He wants to partner with you in that process. And he sends you because he wants your transformation to help others discover the depths of his love for themselves. He wants to work through people like you and me. You know, sometimes it doesn't make sense, but that's how he wants people to discover his love is through us. Just as he breathed on those first followers, just as he sent those first followers, just as his spirit came to dwell within and empower those first followers, to help them move from what was to what will be, he offers you and me those very same things. I invite you to pray with me right now, a very, very simple prayer. And just, you're welcome to repeat it to yourself wherever you're listening. And it's a simple prayer. Jesus, thank you for seeking me. Here I am. Jesus, thank you for restoring me. Please keep it up. Jesus, thank you for sending me. Help me be up to the calling you've placed on my life. In the name of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and our Savior, the very Son of God, we ask these things. Amen.